hoping you have had a great week. Welcome to this week's edition of the Africa Climate Podcast, a weekly podcast dedicated to bridging climate communication gaps in Africa. I'm your host, Sophie Mbogwa. Yesterday, the IPCC released the Working Group to report on the latest evidence on the impact of accelerating climate change on humans and nature. Hence, we pause the air pollution series to explore what this reports mean for the continent. Africa has contributed among the least to greenhouse gas emissions, but we have seen countries like Madagascar heavily impacted by subsequent storms and cyclones. Climate change impacts different regions in Africa differently, but the continent's temperature increases are projected to be higher than the global average. Chris Trissos, the IPCC Working Group 2 coordinating lead author, spoke to Africa Climate Podcast on the impacts and risks the report identifies for Africa. The major finding from this assessment is that most African countries have contributed among the least to the greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate change. And yet key development sectors across Africa have already experienced widespread losses and damages attributable to human-induced climate change. And this is particularly the case for water shortages in some regions such as Southern Africa, reduced food production across large regions of Africa, loss of lives due to extreme events such as floods and storms, but also to extreme heat and reduced economic growth. Major projected risks for Africa include risks to economic growth, so reduced economic growth, reduced food production, increased inequality between African countries, also increased poverty, increased human morbidity and mortality from infectious disease and from increased extreme events such as heat waves, as well as widespread biodiversity loss. So that's both local population collapses as well as extinction for many species in freshwater and marine systems and also on the land. And an example of this that's particularly concerning in Africa is over half of the sub-Saharan African workforce are employed in agriculture and about 90 to 95 percent of African cropland is rain-fed and above two degrees Celsius of global warming. Most of African cropland goes beyond its historically safe climate zone and there are even with adaptation projected to be substantial losses in yields at global warming beyond two degrees celsius so this emphasizes how for africa it's really really crucial to limit global warming to 1.5 celsius or as close and to 1.5 to the lowest level possible and the report assesses that between 1.5 and 2 degrees global warming impacts are projected in Africa to become widespread and severe to food systems, to ecosystems, to economies, and to people. And for example, another projected risk is that between 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius of global warming, impacts are projected to become widespread and severe for reduced food production, reduced economic growth, increased inequality and poverty. And for example, with economies and poverty, it's around 2030, that the difference between high warming and lower warming, low emission pathways really start to emerge. And beyond that point, you start to get really large increases in inequality. So growing inequality between African countries, as well as within the next decade, under high climate change and development that's not inclusive, you could see around 40 million um, Africans pushed into extreme poverty. 
So that's an additional 40 million people being pushed into extreme poverty because of climate change in the next decade. Fisheries provide the main source of protein for 30% of Africa's population. They also support the livelihood of 12.3 million people. Speaking to journalists during an IPCC Africa briefing yesterday, Rachel Beznakar, the IPCC Working Group 2 coordinating lead author, says climate crisis will not only disrupt fish production, but the entire food systems and nutrition. The fisheries uh, productivity had overall global declines in part because of global warming. But um, in addition, fisheries move significant for those communities in Africa that are highly reliant on fisheries for their food security and livelihoods. There were significant impacts observed on crops, and this is projected to worsen. The amount of global warming that occurs will significantly affect how much crop yields will be affected in the future. Uh, Another uh, important uh, finding that is uh, really emphasized in the report overall is uh, cascading events where you have an extreme event or some other dimension of climate change having complex and cascading impacts. Uh, So, for example, with food production losses lead to food price increases, which in turn has effects on food security and nutrition, so that it's not just a matter of one impact uh, in affecting the food system, but multiple impacts. And the risk of increased food security and nutrition is high for sub-Saharan Africa. It is highlighted as one of the global hotspots of vulnerability, but then for solutions that draw on indigenous and local knowledge. And in our chapter, we highlight, for example, uh, agro-pastoralist knowledge in West Africa who have rich and detailed knowledge of different feed resources and, and the importance of using adaptation strategies that are really inclusive and draw on that indigenous knowledge and respectful of that indigenous knowledge in order to have effective and uh, feasible adaptation strategies for that context. Teresa says the report identifies coping opportunities, but limitations exist. Something that's very concerning that is identified in this report is the opportunity to use ecosystem-based approaches to adapt is very dependent upon the level of global warming. So, for example, coral reefs that can help protect against uh, storm surges above 1.5 degrees Celsius, many of those ecosystems like corals start to reach hard limits to adapt uh, with further sea level rise, low lying coastal wetlands are another example. If they are not able to migrate further inland, they're committed to losses. And so these ecosystem based approaches can be effective, but they really depend on strong greenhouse gas emissions reduction options to allow them to work, to keep global warming levels as low as possible so that they can be effective nature-based adaptation options. In the African context, there is also the potential for maladaptation with these ecosystem-based solutions. And an example of this, which is assessed, is tree planting campaigns. We hear a lot about planting trees to soak up carbon dioxide and help control emissions. But if these trees are planted in areas that are naturally unforested, such as grasslands, then they can actually be very damaging to ecosystems and to water security and livelihoods. So the report is very clear that 
tree planting campaigns when they are about forest restoration or reforestation. So if a forest has been chopped down and you're replanting it, that can be good. But if it's an ecosystem that doesn't naturally support forest, so we're putting trees in the wrong places, then that can actually lead to increased wildfire under drought conditions. It can increase carbon dioxide emissions from the soils. It can also reduce the ecosystem services from grasslands, for example, by removing grazing land from pastoralists who depend on those. So we've got to be very careful with our ecosystem-based approaches, both to keep the level of global warming as low as possible, so these ecosystem approaches can work for us, and also to use the right type of ecosystem approaches in the right places. Africa is home to the world's youngest and fastest growing population. Rapidly urbanizing, the continent's 1.1 billion citizens are projected to double in number by 2050, with more than 80% of the increase happening in cities. What adaptation opportunities do the growing cities present globally? Here is Deborah Roberts, the IPCC Working Group 2 co-chair, while speaking to journalists during an IPCC briefing yesterday. The opportunities in urban areas are multiple, around planning and design of infrastructure, bringing nature back into the city. So often we've thought about nature uh, as something that occurs outside city borders. But our report points out very clearly that if we bring nature back into the city, protect our floodplains, have trees along our streets, we can do a great deal to increase our adaptive capacity to deal with impacts of floods, heat stress, improve health. And so there's a real advantage in reconceptualizing our cities, not only as a place of people, but a place of nature. We also need to know, though, that amongst our cities, there's a subset, the coastal cities, and we know that we will have about a billion people living in low-lying coastal areas by the middle of the century that are particularly at risk. And they're particularly at risk because of the impacts of sea level rise, salination, flooding, heavy rainfall. And those are areas we would probably need to act on initially because they are areas of high economic activity, connectivity to inland areas, and because of the range of risks they're exposed to. And in those areas, we would need to think, for example, about coastal defenses, moving away from hard sea walls to more productive coastal ecosystems, early warning systems to enable people to know when risks are emerging and to make suitable plans, to factor in that we need good governance and that if one wants decent responses to the challenges that many of these areas would face, we have to have everyone around the table agreeing on the plans. And this includes the most vulnerable. And the report is really important because it focuses us not only on the formal aspects of urban development, but calls out very strongly the informal settlements around the world where many of the most vulnerable live and calls for a specific focus on these and a call to start investing in our informal settlements to change the tide, both literally and figuratively. Research is critical for development. For Africa to adapt to the changing climate effectively, the extent of impact temperatures have heard currently have and are projected to have on the ecosystems and people must be clearly understood. The African Union has set a target of 1% of GDP to be invested in research by African countries, but there is a massive gap in finding research in Africa. Trisu says massive data gaps exist in Central Africa and parts of the Sahel, North and Southern Africa. Overall, Africa is relatively under-resourced for research and 
under-researched. So one of the assessments in this report indicates that only around 4% of funding for climate change research has been allocated to Africa since 1990. So that's a continent as Africa that's highly vulnerable to climate change has had almost just a fraction of the global climate change research budget has been spent on Africa. And even within that 4%, that small amount, most of that funding, almost about three quarters of it, has actually gone to research institutions in Europe and North America. And a very, very small percentage has gone to African researchers at African institutions where they are empowered to set their own research agendas to understand local vulnerability and risks. And so a major opportunity for accelerated climate action and adaptation action in Africa is increasing funding for research and especially increasing funding for African researchers at African institutions to lead their own research projects and understand local climate risks and adaptation options. And this is particularly the case. There are really big data gaps in Central Africa and parts of Africa around the Sahel and into the south of North Africa. Um, south Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Ghana are much better researched compared to the rest of the continent. And then there are two important types of data constraints that really make it difficult to understand certain climate risks in Africa. And the first one is around weather station reporting and weather station systems. So most African countries don't have regularly reporting weather stations and lack of a weather station network makes it very difficult to connect satellite observations of weather, for example, to what's happening on the ground. And it also makes it really difficult to develop early warning systems, for example, that can help inform farmers or people who are working on infrastructure about a flood hazard or something that might be coming. Um, the more local information there is on, on climate hazards from weather stations, the better those systems can be developed, the more locally targeted they can be. So there's really this big limitation for adaptation and understanding risk around weather stations. Another big limitation is many African countries don't perform regular censuses uh, where they identify numbers of people, where those people live, the income status of those people and their livelihood status. And so without that type of information, it's also very difficult to identify where vulnerable populations are. Now, as cyclones, storms, floods, droughts, landslides increase, to save lives, there is a need to alert communities way beforehand and decision makers on upcoming natural disaster. While speaking to journalists during the IPCC media briefing, Pateri Taras, the World Meteorological Organization Secretary General, noted a need to invest in early warning services, especially in developing nations, for effective adaptation. One powerful way to adapt to climate change is to invest in early warning services, uh, which are in fairly poor shape in less developed countries. And we have also major gaps in the basic observing systems uh, especially in Africa, Caribbean and Pacific Islands, uh, which means that uh, early warning services, the quality is poor there, and we don't know where to adapt to because we don't have the baseline. So we have to invest in both uh, basic observing systems and uh, early warning services. Adaptation, investing in early warning systems, green-proofing African cities cannot happen without finance. 
Adaptation finance has been among critical issues for Africa during the AUN annual climate summits. Africa has been pushing for 50% of finance to be allocated to adaptation. What does the Working Group 2 report say on adaptation finance? Here is Trisus again. This report is, it makes for quite difficult reading around the gap in adaptation finance. Mm -hmm. Most climate finance is going to mitigation and that is absolutely essential. We need finance in mitigation. But as a proportion, globally, it's less than 10% of climate finance is being targeted at adaptation. And if you look at Africa, many African countries, their demand is actually for adaptation finance because they're not yet major greenhouse gas emitters. So what the assessment shows in Africa is a lot of adaptation finance is not targeting the most vulnerable countries. And even then, about only about half of the adaptation finance from public sources that is committed, so it's been allocated, only about half of it is actually being dispersed on the ground. And when you compare that to other development projects in Africa, about 96% of finance that's allocated is actually dispersed. So there's still these huge obstacles in adaptation projects of actually getting finance flowing onto the ground and getting projects implemented. And things that the assessment identifies there as things that could really help would be from the international community, from wealthy countries, a requirement for many African countries is to receive finance more as grants or concessional finance, so low interest loans, as opposed to finance that gets them further into debt to adapt to a climate change problem that they weren't responsible for causing in the first place. So that's a, a strong issue of climate justice identified in the report. And then within African countries, there's a requirement for the private sector to step up in a big way to support adaptation action. So far, overwhelming majority of funding for adaptation is coming from public finance, from governments or multilateral development banks like the World Bank. And a very small fraction is coming from the private sector. And another requirement is really for African governments to take an all of government approach to climate change. So climate change can't be seen as something that's the job for the environment ministry or the agriculture ministry. It really needs to be seen as something that's also the job of the finance ministry. And so there are examples in a report where governments in Africa that have adopted these all of government approaches where the finance ministry is part of an interministerial team that takes climate change very seriously. In those cases, implementing projects with adaptation finance that's been received, the implementation has been much faster than in projects where the government approach is much more kind of dislocated across different parts of government. COP27 is dubbed the African COP. Adaptation, finance, loss and damage, recognition for its special needs and circumstances are among critical issues Africa will be taking to Sham El Sheikh, Egypt, later in November this year. What message goes to COP27 from the IPCC Working Group 2? Here is Roberts again. If we are to move forward, and remember right at the outset, I stressed the importance of urgent and integrated action across the adaptation and mitigation and sustainable development fields. In this decade, we're going to have to change the focus on adaptation because as up until now, things like financing have been largely directed to, to mitigation. So the message that will go to the COP from Working Group 2 is that we need to balance the scales. We need to have a stronger adaptation agenda 
It needs to be resourced more effectively. Those resources need to be targeted in a way that allows us to invest in the most vulnerable communities and, and ecosystems. At this time of urgent action, we can't let adaptation lag. But that does require us to fundamentally restructure things like global financing. It also requires us to look at local and subnational contexts, because in order to be able to engage with vulnerability and adaptation at, at the local level, many of the groups that we've spoken about today, women, children, the elderly, uh, the LGBTQI community are just not at the table um, and they are the most vulnerable. And so if we're to improve their adaptive capacity, it does require it that we relook at our governance system and, and the way that we take decisions. So I think it's inclusive uh, action, it's bold action, it's financed action, it's action at all levels, and it's action now uh, that, that is required from adaptation if we are to achieve climate resilient development. And that is all we had for you today. Remember, the Working Group 2 report is available on the IPCC website where you can read the detailed findings on Africa. In the meantime, please find us on Spotify, Apple, and Captive as Africa Climate Podcast. You can also find us on our website, www.africaclimateconversations.com. If you experience some challenges on any other platforms, please bear with us. We just moved host. Please feel free to let us know any difficulties you're experiencing using info at africaclimateconversations.com. But for now, it's goodbye from me. Till next week on Tuesday, my name is Sophie Cole.